Hello, how you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. the devil are you yes it is thursday i am staring out of a window in manchester it's a very crisp cold day and you know what there is not a cloud in the sky it's absolutely gorgeous and i'm very happy because i've literally just finished uh recording a podcast with the exceptional clint boone you see this is why i'm quite giddy because he's just had a fantastic natter um you're gonna know clint of course from inspiral carpets um, if you're in Manchester, you'll know him as a DJ. And also, he DJs at a club called South in Manchester. He's been doing it for 19 years. Uh, talk about fingers in pies and spinning plates. This guy does not stop. He is an amazing man to sit down. And we went on, I don't know how long we, we spoke for now. It was definitely over the hour and a half. Like, I've met Clint a couple of times. Like, we've had a drink, we've had a natter. But we didn't sort of delve into his life and who he is and what he's all about. Obviously, we saved it for the podcast, which we've been talking about for ages. So he came to meet me in Manchester and, yeah, we uh, we got down to it. Look, because I'm recording this now, I haven't even gone on social media yet because I don't know what your reaction is to last week's episode with Gary Usher. Um, no doubt you are enjoying it because he is a fascinating human being and it was a wondrous time that we spent together. Um, so look, I will stop talking now. Well, for now, I'm going to be talking a lot more in a bit. Or rather, Clint Boone is. Oh, see, I've been talking so much, my voice is gone. Where's that echinacea throat spray, Griff? That's what I need. Right, let's get down to this. This is episode 113 of the Two Shot Podcast. We go to Manchester with Mr. Clint Boone. So usually I start off, you know, start off talking about a certain thing that I may have knowledge of but I want to start off talking to you about something that I've got I'm, I'm completely uneducated about it and it's homeschooling oh yeah right because I know that you that you and Charlie homeschool yeah the kids right. and, I, and I know nothing about it and I don't know anybody that does it right so when did that start I'm guessing seven years ago we started it, six or seven years ago. There was a couple of reasons why. We'd always, we were always into doing things a natural way. Mm. So, like, having babies at home, you know, in our own environment, in water, in the bedroom. We always, we always opted where we could for independent midwif- midwifery. Yeah. So, you know, my, my, my son was, was born in, in our old house. Right, OK. In a, in a pool. I mean, when we were kids, I was, it was a common thing to be born at home, wasn't it? And yeah. a lot of time, it'd be the lady at the end of the street who'd come around and help you get the baby sorted and all that. So we've always been into this way of doing things the natural way rather than fitting into the system and doing what the system tells you, which is go to the NHS hospital, lie on your back. Lie on your back, that's push the, the thing that always got me. All that, it's all those things that, as a society, we've become 
we've become we've been taught over the last couple of hundred years or so that that's the way you do it. But nature does it a different way, doesn't it? Mm. So we've always we've always been into this this approach to, you know, having babies, raising babies, etc. And we always liked the idea of homeschooling, but we were never really in a position to try it. Um we had two boys, Oscar who's now fifteen, Hector who's now thirteen. They were in school, they're in private school to start with. Right. And then we had little Cassius, he popped along. So we were thinking, like, this is going to get expensive, putting him through that system. And then we had another baby called Luna, who sadly we lost. She was only 34 days old and we, we lost her. Um, and that was quite, well, it was the darkest thing we've ever gone through, you know, that, that, that you know, not just losing the baby, but then the, the year afterwards, the 18 month afterwards, it was a proper dark time for the mm. family, not just for Charlie and myself, but for the boys as well. Yeah. Um, and it was sort of when we came out of that, when Charlie started getting back on her feet, um, and when you've lost a child, you just want to spend every second you can with your, your children that you've got, you know? So it was, it was partly that, and partly because my financial situation was that we can survive just about on what I earn, so Charlie doesn't need to work. And we just arrived at a point, it was just like this coming together of, you know, like the ley lines where suddenly it was like, this is a great time to try homeschooling. Mm. So we took the two boys out of school um, and then we set out on this journey, which we're still on, and it's it feels dead normal to us now. Yeah. Um, and generally in the UK, the, the, the UK is one of the, it's one of the most liberal countries in the world when it comes to homeschooling. In terms of you are allowed to do it, if you take your kid out of school by, you know, tell the local council... Obviously, he's got to speak to the school, but there's a, there's a routine that you can go through, or there's a procedure you can go through to get them out of school into the homeschool environment. Um, and then in this country as well, you do, most councils have a department that deals with the OMED community, and they facilitate with whatever you need. They'll put you in touch with all the other OMED community, they'll tell you about events and activities that you can go to. So for us, it's been a case of we're following the spirit of each child, each one of our children. Oscar's 15. He's an absolute genius. Uh, he does a thing called net school. So four days a week, he'll sit for between three and five hours in his bedroom doing a live class with a live teacher. Yeah. 20 or 30 kids around the UK, all you know, on headsets with a, a whiteboard on screen and all that. And he's chosen to, because we didn't say you've got to do any of these subjects, he's chosen to do um, chemistry, biology, maths, computer science. And he's brilliant at all of them. Mm. He's just got this amazing mind. This is a kid that used to do the Rubik Cube in 20 seconds at Kendall Calling. Right. Stood on the table in the uh, Tim Peake's diner while everybody stood around cheering. <laughs> the genius. But if you ask him what he's going to do for a job, he wants to be a musician, a session musician. Does he? So from next September, he's at Manchester College doing music performance. That's his, his dream and his ambition. Right. But behind that, he's a scientist, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, of course. <clears throat> With Hector, who's 13, he's really into visual stuff like photography and... He's really into his fashion, you know what I mean? He's like, he grooms himself really beautifully. So I think he's going to go down that sort of route. Mm. Um, and he has, until recently, had a private tutor come in once a week to have a couple of hours with Hector, a couple of hours with Cassius, who's nine. So we're just nurturing them all in individual ways, really, rather than saying to them all, you have got to do maths and English. They all do maths and English anyway, but we're just catering for them all in a different way. It sounds and like you've given them freedom to make their choices. They have a lot of freedom, yeah. yeah. And a little bit of encouragement, you know, I'm not, I would never force them to get into music, but because they've seen what I do, mm. whether it's in the Inspiral Carpets or whether it's on the radio or whether it's friends like, you know, 
Manny's my mate and Uki's my mate. And so they're surrounded by this really beautiful world uh, within which I've been fortunate enough to make my, my profession, you know mm. what I mean? So they've seen the benefits of that. Um, so I'd never say you are going to have guitar lessons, but like when Oscar suddenly decided to start playing bass guitar, I was made up and he taught himself like really quickly and he's brilliant. He's better than a lot of the professional bass players that I know. Really? Yeah, he's scurrily good. Wow. Can play anything. Um, absolutely br brilliant. That's like a gift though, isn't it? When someone can gift. just pick up an it instrument. It is an absolute gift. It's an absolute gift. Um, so yeah, and little Cassius, who's nine, he's just, he's sort of, he's the most natural kid you can imagine. He was born at home, born in water. He's never been to school. He's got long blonde hair down to his backside. Mm. You know what I mean? He just dances. He can't walk through a room without dancing or skipping and, and he's just like, I always say, he's like the sunshine in a, in a child, you know what I mean? And he's like, I want him to get into dancing because he's so good at it. Yeah. And he's, really, he's very tall and thin. He's got such a nimble frame. And I'm always like, you need to be a dancer. And I think it's only a matter of time before he gets into dancing or drama or whatever, you know, so. But yeah, you know, when people say, when anybody says about homeschooling, I remember my little boy years ago, he wasn't having a particularly good time at school. He was finding things very difficult. He said, oh, can I just be homeschooled? And I went, oh, bloody... And it, for me, it fills me with dread because I think, God, I, I don't know if I've got the skill set to do that. And also, that sounds like incredibly hard work. Yeah. But f from what you're explaining and what you're telling me now, my shoulders have kind of just relaxed and I've gone, that sounds very, a very it's... freeing experience that you're just nurturing and guiding yeah, these totally, kids. Yeah. And that they're, especially with um, Cassius, who's never been to school. Yeah. You know, he didn't know anything else. And if you met him, if you saw him, I mean, me and my wife had a meeting recently, a, a venue that we're going to be doing a lot of work at, and we've sat around the board, pretty much a boardroom meeting, really, with the, the, the people that own the venue, me and Charlie and a guy called Pat, who's part of the venue. And Cassius came with us because we, we had nowhere to put him for the day, so he came with us and sat, sat at this meeting table with us and he was doing his play with Nintendo Switch, whatever it was. And occasionally just pick up on what we were saying in the conversation and join in. And it was just phenomenal what he was coming out with. The nine-year-old kid mm. suddenly talking about algorithms and things to do with the internet that we were talking about, I can't remember, but it was to do with uploading things to YouTube or whatever. And he just kept joining in on the conversation. He was only nine. And he was holding a conversation with, like, these mature professional people and me. And um, <laughs> But, yeah, he's just so advanced for his age. And, yeah, you know, his, his writing, his reading might not be up to what it would be if he was in school. But I'm convinced that he's got such a, a great head start now in terms of where he's going to be in 10 years' time at yeah. 19. It's just, it's beautiful. And I, I feel like, for me, I didn't enjoy my school years. I went to a grammar school, old boys grammar school in the early 1970s, where, you know, it's all right for adults to punish you, whip you physically, you know, on the hand, on the arse, whatever, round the head sometimes. And that was school for me, and I didn't enjoy it. I, don't, I didn't realise how much I didn't like it until I left and went to art college, and that was a real awakening for me, that... Well, I think for me, it feels like school got in the way because all the things I got punished for in my class, which was usually for trying to make my classmates laugh. Mm. In fact, that, it was always that, burping in class, being an exhibitionist, being an extrovert, extrovert and all that. So all the things I got punished for at school are what I ended up making my living out of. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's my simplistic view of why I love the idea of my youngest kids being on the old school thing because they're not school isn't interrupting the development. And I'm not saying that, I'm not anti the system, you know, it's not, I'm not anti the education, whatever. It's just, we were fortunate enough, me and Charlie, to be able to try this and, and we've not looked back. 
Um, one of the first questions people ask when we say we home school is, who does the teaching? And you are Charlie. You don't have to follow the, the curriculum at all. Right. If you don't want to, you don't have to follow it. We've chosen to do maths and English with, with each of the kids. But around that, it's just following their dreams and their, you know, their, their desires and that. Um, in some countries, you, you're not allowed to. In some countries, if you take kids out of school, you go to jail, you know what I mean? It's yeah. Just, so we are, we're, we're quite, it's quite a liberal country, this. They don't advertise the fact, the government don't advertise the fact that you can homeschool because I think if too many of us did it, society would change. Yeah. I think it would change in a better way, but it would be a massive shift in the way that everything's structured. But also it's like what I was saying before, you say homeschooling to some people and puts the fear of God into them because they just think, oh, that, yeah. that everything else would stop and I'm basically becoming a teacher at home. But yeah. obviously... It does, it's not like that. It doesn't have to be like that. I'll tell you one of the things I noticed. So when we started homeschooling, so I, I, probably seven years ago, whenever I spoke to a teacher about it, or whenever me and Charlie discussed it with a teacher at the time, they'd be like, oh, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? You know, a bit, bit like not quite getting it or thinking it was the wrong thing to do. These days, every single teacher that I speak to about homeschooling says, you're doing the right thing. I've not met a teacher in the modern age that's <laughs> that said... You're wrong. Wow. You know I mean, it's interesting that, and it? there might be some listening out there, and they might be emailing as we speak, saying, "No, oh, Clint, you're doing the wrong thing." But I believe that we are raising, you know, three kids there that are going to do great things yeah. in their life. Well, it sounds like it, and also nobody really has the right. I know you've been hypothetical, but no one has the right to go, "Oh, Clint, Charlie, I think you're doing the wrong thing there," because yeah. that would be like someone questioning your parenting techniques. Nobody would have the right to do that. Yeah. You know what, if they all end up in jail, then people could come and sell yeah. the wrong thing. But it's, um, I'm convinced, you know, I'm, I consider myself to be fairly intelligent and, you know, I'm a reasonable person and I'm convinced we've done the right thing. Um, and there might come a point where, you know, Cassius might want to go to school. He might decide at some point he's going to take himself off to school, which does happen. You know, we've got homeschool friends who have chosen to go into hmm. a traditional sort of school environment. But at the moment, we, we're loving it. and But we just we consider ourselves very lucky that we're in a position to try it. Yeah, of course, because um, so many people are. Yeah, because you can't, because of your job, you know, you, yeah. can't, you can't afford to sack off your job and, no. you know, do whatever you need to do. But it's, it's been beautiful. And some of the moments that we've had, like one of, the, one of the first things we did early on in the homeschooling was our friend Mike Gary, who I'm, I'm assuming he's your mate as well, poet, Man Manchester-based poet, Mike Gary? No, I don't know. All right, okay. He's this brilliant poet from Manchester. He's a friend of ours. And he came and did like an homeschool little session for our kids in our, our dining room. Wow. Talking to them about poetry and reading poetry to them. And that was beautiful, you know what I mean? And then some days they'll come and sit with me in the radio station while, you know, Biffy Clyro might be doing a session or whatever. And we've got a beautiful picture of Cassius as a baby being held by the Manic Street Preachers who came into XFM to see me. And all these beautiful moments that you get that, you know, if they were in a standard education sort of system, they'd, they'd miss out on some of these amazing little things. They would. I think. But, uh, How do you get around social interaction with other children? They've got quite a big group now of other OMED kids. Right. So, and also we take them to various activities where there are OMED kids. So, for example, Greystone Skate Park down in Salford. It's a massive... Um, it's not just a skate park, it's all sorts of stuff. But it's a beautiful complex and they go down there once a week. I think it's Wednesdays, they're going to hang out there with a bunch of other homemade kids. So they are getting that social interaction. They might not always be in a class of 30 other people, mm. 
But I remember that and I didn't like it. No. It didn't work for me and it don't work for a lot of people. It's just that is the norm, isn't it? Mm. You will go to school for seven hours a day, whatever it is, you'll sit in a class with 30 or 40 people and, you know, some of them will be throwing bits of paper at the back of your head. Um, you'll be in a room that you're not content with, the teacher might not like you and vice versa. And So, yeah, I mean, to me, they're getting the social interaction they need. Um, but, you know, not in a class of 30 herbits. Which, which <laughs> seems much healthier. It, well, again, to me it is. And, yeah. You know, it, it feels like, the, you know, the, the people we, we are raising, we're nurturing these amazing people. And uh, let's have a listen to this in 10 years' time and see if we've got it right. I, That's the thing, isn't it? But Oscar Louis-Louis Boone is my 15-year-old. Hector Angel Boone is 13. And then Cassius Rudy Boone is nine. So let's watch out for them names in a few years' time. We'll just we'll just put this out 10 years to the day, Clint. Yeah. We'll just see where they you are. You mean reissue? Put it out now, by I'll, all means. Yeah. I'll bring them on. Reissue. Yeah, reissue. Yeah, It'll yeah, be yeah. a reissue. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, can you imagine that? If you brought them all on, it'll slag me off for home school. <laughs> yeah, my dad's a right pillock. Yeah, we'll, we'll, done that. we'll find out in 10 years. We all wanted to go to school, but he won't let us. So you were saying about your school life then, so I was thinking, oh, we should knit back in time now and mm. discuss about uh, growing up, because it was Oldham, wasn't it, where you grew up? I grew up in Oldham, but I went to school in Middleton, um, Cardinal Langley, which right. is where the Coogans went as well. So, sorry, that's the sound of me. Uh, pretty green top being unzipped. Hashtag pretty green. Um, much much welcome to sponsor the yeah. podcast, if they like. Good, uh, great great companies. I do a lot of work with them, so I'm, uh, I'm a, a friend of the brand, I think they call it. Um, yeah, so I went to... I grew up in a little town called Shaw, just outside Oldham. Went to primary school there. They had this thing called the 11 Plus, which was a big deal back then. If you passed that, at, was it nine or ten-year-old who took it? Mm. And if you passed this exam, it meant you could go to grammar school. And that's what happened. I didn't, didn't really desire to go to grammar school. It's just that that was the norm. You'd do this exam. And um, you got offered the chance to go to grammar school. So we went. I went to grammar school. And it was in Middleton, so it was quite a trip from where I live. It was eight miles away, a couple of bus rides to get to it. Um, and that was, I probably started there in 1970. I think I left in 75. It was all boys, um, which, again, in hindsight, I'm not really a fan of that sort of spending most of your, your day, most of your waking day with just a load of lads. Yeah. It means that you're not, you're not getting time to interact with girls and learn how to be around girls, sure. you know, so... In hindsight, which is very important, but it's, it's crucial, isn't it, Absolutely. to human beings? And it's it's all about it, there's, there's male and female, and we're going to get together and make the next generation, aren't we? So yeah, I found that a bit strange. But as I said before, the fact that it was the norm back then for kids to be, you know, you could physically hurt kids as punishment. Was there a lot of that at your school? You're loads of it, yeah. Mm. It was, but it's normal, you know. So I didn't come home saying to mum and dad, "Got strapped today." Um, people knew, you know, our parents knew that's what, what went on. If you if you burped in the middle of an English class, you were going to get punished for it. Yeah. That's what happened. You'd get the strap on the hand or a, a plimsoll across your arse. Or... But even at, even at primary school, you know, that was quite... When I think back to some of the things that happened there, you know, that was wrong. You know, like, we used to get hit with canes. I remember being... It's probably nine-year-old, um, infant three. Is that no, junior three? And then the top class was junior four, and then you went off to... Grammar school, if you're a clever enough lad. <laughs> but um, I remember being nine, and I did something in class, probably to make my mates laugh. And the teacher said, "Right, go and see." I'm not going to name the guy because that'd be, you know. So I can cut it out anyway. Yeah, but anyway, I had to go and see the guy that was in charge of Junior Four. Yeah, who was also the deputy headmaster for the school, and he administered all the, the punishment in his office. 
in his class in front oh, of his, his kids. Class in yeah, front which of was evil. When I think back, this is evil because I was nine. I, I wasn't wasn't a bad kid. I was just having a giggle or whatever. You know what I mean? So you were a nine year old. I was born. a nine year old kid. So my little Cassius, right? That's him. How old he is now? And I had to go into the junior four class and I had to tell the teacher what I'd done, and that Mrs. Suchabody had told me to come and see you. So he's got a class of like 28 kids in front of him and behind his desk, he had a rack on the wall with canes, you know, bamboo canes. Yeah. Starting at the bottom with really thick ones and thin ones at the top. And he said, right, pick a cane. It's in front of his class. And I, I thought I'd pick a, probably go for a thin one will be, you know, it won't hurt as much. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> hell. And anyway, he just whipped the fuck out of my hand oh. in front of all these kids. I'm nine year old. And I, you know, it's not like I kicked a piece of shit under somebody's door or something. It was yeah. like, I remember a kid doing that, actually, in the infants. I'll tell you about it in a minute. <laughs> well, um, I, I never did anything like that. I, you know, the, the worst I ever did in school was make my mates laugh or yeah. whatever. Anyway, but, yeah, that, that was the norm, you know, even in uh, infant school, junior school, you know. It's brutal, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. There was a guy called John Sinner, too, I remember. And it was uh, infant one and infant two. I bet we must have been probably seven, six or seven. I don't know what the ages were. But I remember, I seem to remember it being like the first day of term as well in this, this new classroom. So we were in our class and the headmaster's office was attached to our classroom and at the bottom of his door was a gap of about four or five inches. Yeah. I remember this little lad who was a proper tour away, this fella. He died young as well, sadly, this lad. He went over to the, the door. I think our teacher had gone out of the room, so we were on our own in this, this class for a few minutes. He went over to the headmaster's door, dropped his kecks and did his shit and kicked it under, knowing that the headmaster was in the room. Right? Bloody hell. And then Kevin sat back at his desk like that. And we're all like, <laughs> <laughs> the teacher comes out, headmaster. Right, who's done that? And everybody just went, it was him. John Stinnett, I'm sure he's called John Stinnett. But yeah, that was, um, I never did out like that. All I did was burp and sing the oldest songs for a laugh. Yeah, I mean, that's quite full on for it was a full on that, but like I say, he died young, that fella. He had a, I think he drowned in a mill lodge or something. Oh, like God. That. Yeah, so he would have been my age now. John. But yeah, what a, what a rebel. That's proper rebelliousness, that, isn't it? That is. Kicking a shit under headmaster's door, that is proper, that, isn't it? That's a, a many, many steps from <laughs> being the class clown, isn't it? He was all right, it's all that headmaster, Mr. Ernan. I'll give him a name check. He was a good lad, Mr. Ernan. I used to like him. In them days, like, we used to have these brutal winters, you know, these like blizzards that just cut off villages and towns. Yeah. And I remember one time we would arrived at school in the middle of a snowstorm and it became obvious quite soon that it was a big blizzard, this. This thing Shaw, probably around 67, 1967. And Mr. Ernan spent the entire, the rest of the day putting three or four kids in his car at a time and driving them all home. You know what I mean? To their own individual houses, which was, I always remember him for that. And he had an Opal Cadet, he was one of the first Opal Cadets. I was in his car, I don't know what made me remember that. <laughs> one of the first Opal Cadets that arrived in the UK, I don't know. So there you go, yeah. But uh, yeah, my schooling led on, you know, from, from primary, you know, I ended up at, this grammar school that I didn't really, you know, appreciate too much. But then the turning point was when I left school, not really planning any particular career direction. I just... What age were you, like 15, 16? 15, 16 probably, yeah. yeah. And, um, and I remember leaving school, finishing school in the summer of 75, it was probably was, and thinking I've not got anything lined up here. Mm. I should really think about what I'm doing next. And some of my mates have been talking about art college... And I thought, that sounds all right, because it'll give me a bit more time to think about what I want to do with my life. Yeah. And I was artistic anyway. And I went to Rochdale Art College, and it was just one of the best times of my life, because not only were the, the teachers struck, they weren't even teachers to me, they were adults who didn't punish me for all the things that 
I, you know, I was good at making yeah. my mates laugh. Yeah. Singing. Not necessarily singing in a geography lesson. I shouldn't have done that. But <laughs> so I, but suddenly I was in this different environment and it was just so free and this was like 75 into 76. Did you feel a light bulb sort of yeah, came totally. on at that point? I, even before, this is the months before the punk thing happened because yeah. that was the proper road to Damascus. I'll come to that in a minute. But through 75 and early 76, it's like, you know, a lot of photography, a lot of drawing and painting. I didn't really stick with the, the, the drawing side of things. I sacked off and went more for the visual. So, you know, the, the, the filmmaking, um, video technology was brand new. It was like we didn't know the word video. I'd heard it once in a David Bowie record. We had this equipment at college that had just arrived in the college that year, and it was um, one of the early video recorders, a massive big camera. Yeah. With a big umbilical cord going down to a massive reel to reel video. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then a big battery pack, like something from Batman. <laughs> you'd have to wear that. And a lot of the time, it'd take two people to carry this kit around, but we're just walking around Rochdale making these video films of, you know, <coughs> me, me posing about in sunglasses. <laughs> made a living out of that yeah, as well, well. but all these things at, at school like, you know at grammar school there's just no way I could have done shit like that and suddenly it's like there you go there's like £20,000 worth of equipment get out into Rochdale and use it go so, and create go and yeah, do yeah photography the filmmaking um, we didn't realise at the time how big video technology was going to become you know there, there wasn't even pop videos no that, that was unheard of I think if I'd have realised that, I might have focused more on the video side of things back then and maybe made that into a bit of a career in, in my mind, I don't know. Because I think through art college, I was probably thinking, I'm going to end up teaching art here or getting into something like that, or maybe just painting and selling paintings or whatever. Um, and the other cool thing that we had at college was this brand new machine that nobody had ever heard of called a synthesizer. And again, probably one of the first in the, in the UK. It wasn't the man in the street couldn't play with a synthesizer. It was yeah. like... It's like this thing from a spaceship, you know, and we had one in this in the college and um it was called Julian, the teacher that was in charge of it. And he just let me go and play on that, plugging little patch bays in and messing with it, making these weird noises. So between the photography, the filmmaking and the music, that was some real big foundation stones being laid down in, in my mind of where where I ended up really and what I do to this day in yeah. a lot of respects. But did you was there any inkling then of what your career was gonna be? No, I think I was still experimenting. Yeah. I think I fancied being a painter at one point, but I didn't really... Painting didn't hold me attention because I like the quick fix. I used to like going out, taking a cool picture. I mean, I've got those pictures of me being iconic. You know what I mean? Like my mate yeah. Alan used to... We used to go around Rochdale, I'd, I'd wear mirror shades and... Um, sorry, mirrored sunglasses and a PBC bike jacket they used to wear and white leather loafers like the Ramones used to wear, that sort of thing. And I'd just be... Pausing and being iconic. Did I say iconic before? I ironic. Iconic. Iconic, I got it right, yeah. Yeah. But but again, ironic, that's where I've ended up. And, you know, I still do a lot of that shit now, don't I, for fucking Boone Army or whatever. Yeah, of course. But um, what happened next was, you know, I was probably starting to think, yeah, I'm going and be a teacher, I'll start, you know, doing my own art. Through summer 76, we started hearing about this new music scene that was starting to happen. And one of the first people that talked to me about what became punk rock was an artist called Phil Diggle. So he was in the year above me at college. And uh, he's still around. He's based in London now, but a great artist. And I remember him saying about it. He used to always have a cigarette in his right hand. Right. And he's very charismatic. And he'd always go on about, yeah, my brother, right? My brother's in this band called Buzzcocks and they're going to be fucking massive and they're going to call it punk rock and all this. And I started hearing him talking about Buzzcocks and this punk thing. 
And um, sure enough, it's like bubbling through a little bit. People have been bringing records in. You know, we were in the art college. We had an open plan, like studio area, um, where we all had our little desk. We'd be working. Not like a classroom, just a proper free form. Mm. Quite chaotic, you know. But that's where we all did our work. And we had a little record player on the table in the middle of the room. And people would bring in records and play them. And they'd get trashed because... You know, you have somebody over here making pottery with his hands full of clay and he'd be turning the record over. So if you brought a record in, you knew, you knew it was going to die in that room eventually. <laughs> but, you know, some of the more generous students would bring in a copy of, you know, this this is a band from New York called The Ramones that we'd not really heard of. And it was like, fucking hell, look, look at the clothes they've got on. Look at their haircuts. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but the sound of it was just like nothing I'd heard, really. No. And then, so Nothing like anybody had heard. No, not really. I mean, I, there was like a, a garage scene in America that I'd discovered later on, had given birth to this stuff, you know. But so the Ramones album came in pretty early. I think the damned, the first damned single, New Rose, came in pretty quick. Stranglers get a grip. These are like the first records that were coming in. So we were aware that something was starting to happen because before that, the record players like Steely Dan and Bruce Springsteen and Pink Floyd and a lot of progressive stuff some of which I liked, some of which I didn't get at all. But, you know, through 75 and early 76, that was the norm. Yeah. You know, Steely Dan's current album was whatever it was. Um, Are you reeling in the years? So a lot of these records remind me of that, that era. But then suddenly this punk stuff started happening and I didn't go to the electric... Sorry, I didn't go to the Sex Pistols gig at the Free Trade Hall in July of 76. But I did go to the Electric Circus in Collierhurst, 9th of December... But that's good. You're not one of those that says, "Yeah, I was at the free yeah. trade hall," because nearly everybody says that they were there. But when I yeah, and I wasn't there, and I would love to be, but um, I'm chuffed that I got to see the Pistols in <coughs> in '76. I've still got my tickets still at home, so it was like one pound twenty to get in. What was that like then? Seeing it, it was like being born. You know, you can't remember your birth, can you? I mean, I've never met anybody that can remember being born. No. But that felt like my memories of that night was. It feels like I'm remembering being born. Because until that point, I'd loved rock and roll music, as in Elvis and Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis. That was my favourite music. Mm. But being a kid from Oldham in, you know, 74, 75, I was never going to be able to see half these fellas. They'd stopped gigging or they'd died or whatever. The current music scene in the UK up until that point was a lot of bands replicating 50s rock and roll, but in a glam sort of way. So, you know, the Rubets, Shuadi Wadi, Mud, Sweet, Gary Glitter. Are we allowed to say his name? Yeah, we can say it. But these are the, this was the current music that was the nearest I was going to get to 50s rock and roll music. And to do that kind of music, you had to be a good musician, mm. you know, because before punk, you couldn't blag it. You couldn't be a shit bass player and be in Cream. You know what I mean? Or Led Zepp. You had to be able to play. The, and even the, the glam bands, they were good musicians, you yeah. know what I mean? So even though I wanted to be Elvis and all that, I didn't really play an instrument. I, you know, I didn't really try to play an instrument. But when punk happened, it was like, these are people like me, working class kids mainly, that have, you know, got the same, some of the same anger that I've got because yeah. of the schooling I've been through yeah. at the time and starting to question the system and authority. And a lot of that was there on stage. Um, it was like almost said, like they were saying, you can do you this. You can do this. And that's, that's exactly what it was. And, yeah. you know, they, they, were, they weren't dressed too differently than me and my art college friends because we were, we were decorating our clothes and we used to go to Oxfam, Oxfam shop and buy dinner suits, black, and then paint the collars white, the pocket flaps white. This is our uniform, uh, like white PVC paint, um, PVA, sorry. And then on the bike, we'd get a, a 
some white paint and splat it down our back. And that was our uniform. Right. And this was, it wasn't punk then, it was just art students doing what art students do. I put a picture on um, up on Twitter a couple of weeks ago of 1976, me and my mates at college. And someday some journalists replied to it saying, that's the most art school picture I've ever seen. It is though, it's like... I it, saw that picture see it? it was, it, yeah. it wasn't complimenting it, because at first I was thinking, oh yeah, what, the best art school picture? And then I thought, no, he's not put the best, he put the most art school picture. But that's how we were, that's what our college kids did back then. And on that night, in December 76, we're in a room full of similar people from around the Northwest who were doing the same, and feeling the same, and, and a lot of hippies as well. It's like there was a lot of hippies still in the electric circus, because it had been a rock club, an hippie club. Right. And the hippies and the rockers were quite sympathetic to what we were doing as punks. So a lot of the, these gigs could only happen in rock clubs, really. There was a similar sort of feeling of being an outcast, I think. But um, So the, the bill that night was, I think Buzzcocks came on first, then Johnny Thunder's Heartbreakers, then The Clash and the Sex Pistols for £1.20. And it was like, you know, Steve Diggle, my mate's brother, Steve was in the Buzzcocks playing guitar there. Wow. And you're looking at, you know, Paul Simonon had, had stuff written on him. Angry, angry slogans and all that, and you're thinking, this is my rock and roll. This is my, this is my fifties rock and roll. But now this is mine, and just, I was the perfect age for. It. I think I'd just turned seventeen. Right. So I was able to start going to all these gigs and seeing all you know the prime punk bands. I saw them all. I think over the next couple of years. I mean, it's no wonder you said you felt like you'd been born. I mean, that is it's like, it, it, a, some lineup. Yeah. I mean, that is. You people go, oh yeah, I was at that gig and it kind of changed my life, but. We, they don't come across very often, do they? No, I mean, it, you know what? It was, it was the most important gig I've ever been to. It might not have been the best in terms of, you know, what I experienced musically, what I've no, had. in terms of what it did for what you. What it did to me, it was, it was, it was birth, you know. That, and, and even the homeschooling thing, you know, that, a lot of that, a lot of why we do it and we're happy doing it is, is that philosophy of there's an alternative way of doing things here. You don't have to do what the big fella tells you. You know, there's always an alternative route. Um, There's and that, always an alternative route. Absolutely. Yeah, but for everything, isn't there? Everything, yeah. yeah. Not just music, not just making a record and being a band, but how you raise your kids, you know. And also what society deems the right path absolutely. to choose. Yeah. We can always go off there's road. A, there's, yeah, because we, 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 we're, we're an animal, aren't we? We're yeah. an animal and it's, it's nature. Clint, what was home life like, just nipping back? It was good when I think back. I've got nice memories of me, my own life. It was very working class. I mean, we'd first, the first four years of my life, I was in a little tourist house in Shaw, a really small house, which is still there. I said that because a lot of the other places that were important to me have been demolished. It's almost like, as I move on through my chapters of my life, it's like there's some big demolition crew going, right, we'll demolish this now. Yeah. you have gone. But my first house is still there, Linney Lane in Shaw. Um, and my mum and dad were mill workers. They met working in the mills, cotton mills. And then eventually they saved up enough money to take over a corner shop in Oldham, not too far away from, from Shaw. So I moved into this corner shop and that was a brilliant moment for me. It was like a bigger building and there was a shop, a shop involved, yeah. a sweet shop, you know what yeah. I mean? On the, on the, we lived above the shop. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's no toilets, outside toilets. And this is from 1964 onwards, so we had to share the... We had, I think it was probably in the block of houses, there was probably maybe 15, 16 houses... And then behind the houses was like a little block of toilets. I think there was six. So you'd share the toilet with two or three other households. So we had communal toilets, no electricity out there. 
if I remember rightly, there were these drop toilets where they, you know, you do your business and it just dropped 20 foot and then you splash five minutes after. But, um, <laughs> but while you're in there in the middle of the night, you know, sometimes maybe with a torch, you hear a knocking on the door. Is somebody in there? Yeah, it's me, it's Clint. All right, Nelly. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm desperate. Can you hurry up? You know what I mean? You'd be like, your neighbours are knocking on the door while you're having a shit. You know what I mean? <coughs> and it was, you, you know, it was before posh toilet paper. But it all, you know, I'd, I've just got nice memories of my childhood. And yeah. it, I felt, you know, I felt warm. And I think back, it's a warm memory. It's, you know, we were loved. My mum and dad were grafters, you know what I mean? Um, it's funny when I think back to my dad, because, he, he, you know, back then and, and subsequently, he always had a lot of income streams. You know what I mean? He always had, like when I think back to when we lived in Shaw, he was working in the cotton mill. He had a window cleaning round. He bred chickens and turkeys, you know, to make money from selling the poultry or whatever. Um, so he was always doing something. He always had. And at the time, I just thought he was a busy lad and he liked all this. But, you know, in hindsight, he was bringing the money in. And I think that's always been an influence on me about having various income streams, especially in the entertainment industry. Well, I was going to say, because whenever we've spoken in the past or whenever I, I look at what you're up to, it's like, if you're not... DJing, which I've been doing for 19 years there. You, you're DJing somewhere else, or you're doing the radio show you've been doing for years, or you're doing this, you're doing that. <laughs> you're, ne- you're non-stop, you're always doing something. And it always it fascinates me when people like that, especially creative people, and they've got to keep doing things. Yeah. And I'm kind of the same. Are you good at stopping and like going, right, I'm taking this break now, and we're going to have a holiday, and the phone's going off, and I'm not checking the emails, mm. and I'm just going to stop and B. Yeah, no, the answer is no. no. <laughs> it's, you, know, so. you know what, part of it is my energy. Every time I go on holiday, I check my emails two or three times a day because I don't have a, I don't have management. You know, it's like, it's important that that work keeps coming in. Yeah. I'm not, a, I think some people think I'm probably wealthy because of what I've done over the years, but I'm not really. I've still got a mortgage that I struggle to pay and, you know, I've got a lot of mouths to feed. I've got two older kids from my first marriage as well. Right. Um, but they're off in the world doing their own thing, which is amazing. Um, and I'm equally as proud of them as of the, the, the little ones. But a lot of it is the necessity. I need that money to keep coming in. So I can't switch off for a week because if I lose, you know, X amount of income, then it sets me back a few months. So, But also you need to feed the creative part of you as well. Absolutely. Because like, like, you know, that kid that I'm talking about, they're going back to junior school. You can see that, that, that kind of spirit is still in there. Mm. I love my music and I love, you know, I'm looking out there thinking what a beautiful building that is now. And, you know, visual stuff appeals to me and creative stuff doesn't writing, doesn't filming, doesn't... So that, that energy, I never want to lose that. I'd like to be in a position one day where I can say, I'm going to back off a bit from the DJing so I can be at home with the wife more. But, you know, when I'm in the zone, like Saturday night, South Nightclub, it's just... Um, it's just incredible. You know, yeah. the, the euphoria that I get from working with a crowd like that, it's just... Uh, it's, it's addictive. And mm. I can't imagine ever not doing South on a Saturday night but I think some of the other DJ work I do, I might say, you know, if I, if I become wealthy enough, I might have to back off from some of that. But South's kind of become part of the tapestry now. Yeah, it's a, it's a big thing and it's something that I've often said to my wife, when I die, put fire my ashes out onto the, uh, the dance floor itself, <laughs> through the smoke machine. But um, yeah, it's, it's an amazing, it's a phenomenon South, it's 19 years. I started DJing in 1975. Did you? So before punk, it was in my last year at school, so when I was 15, me and my mates set up a mobile disco. And it's called the Royton, Royton Interchange Disco Roadshow. Right. Long story. My mate's mum helped us put it together. Um, <laughs> She's to blame, is she? 
Well, she was like, <laughs> there's three of us. There's me, John and Kenny and the, the, had this mobile disco. And John's mum, they were an Irish family. And she was getting us the best gigs through the local Irish club. So we're doing these, um, what do you call it? I can't remember what they called it. Not Cayley Night or something, I can't remember. But we do a lot of Irish nights at the right. local Irish club. So we'd be playing a lot of Irish music as well, while people jigged about and all that business. So she was getting us good work and she was like driving us a lot of places and all that. And uh, when we came to think of our name, it was like everything was Disco Roadshow, wasn't it, by yeah. then? So we're from Royton. So we thought, Royton, Disco Roadshow. And she said, I think you should call yourself Royton Interchange because your music's interchangeable. Because <laughs> you do Irish music and you do di disco and a bit of soul. So we went for Royton Interchange, Disco Roadshow. I've still got the business cards at home. I tell you what, there's method and the madness there. I see <laughs> yeah, where she was yeah. coming from. But that's, I, I, I DJed there until, I think when the spirals got busy, you know, I had nine or ten years that I wasn't around as much to be able to DJ, but I DJed up to 85, 86, pretty much full-time, and then as soon as the band took a break in 95, I got back onto the DJ circuit immediately. Yeah. So it's like 45 years since I started DJing. God. You know what I mean? So it's that's madness, that, isn't it, when I think about it? You've done Irish nights, haven't you, Griff? Yeah, I've played an Irish night. Oh, do you really? What's it called, don't it? It's called Meet the Folkers, play around Chorley. Right, okay. Christenings, weddings, and uh, various do's of joy. And what do you play? Instrument? Play melodium. Oh, nice. Borrowing on a couple of songs. What hand? You wafted, do you like that? Is it one hand? Yeah. Yeah. Right, okay. So it's, what, is it round your neck or is it on a table? On, round my neck. Round your neck, That's right? Round. Yeah, squeeze box. Wow. I bet you're good at that, isn't it? Yeah, Proper yeah. skill, that, isn't it? Pressing <laughs> the buttons as well. It's easier, I can't play piano. Even though I'm a keyboard player, I can't play <laughs> piano. And people are surprised when I said that. But yeah, I can, I can totally, yeah, because so you're playing your right hand with the, the keyboard and then your left hand's on the buttons. Yeah. Right, and it's, I might have a go at that. I'm going to have a lot of time on my hands after March the 30th when Excess Manchester changes. So. But, well, I don't, I don't think you'd be short of not doing anything, Clint. That's the you danger of any thumbs, will you? I should have brought you, I do these mind maps, me every so often when there's a, a bit of a change in my circumstances or a lot going on in my head, I'll get a piece of paper and I'll start trying circles and writing in them. You know, this is me, CB, this is my wife, Charlie. And then, right, some music, band, radio, podcast, did it. And my latest one is incredible. I should have brought it. It's a work of art. It's like, it's just this chaos. And there's probably, over the two A4 pages I'm talking about, it's probably 30 or 40 circles. And every one is something that I'm either doing now, something I'd like to do, something that I could potentially get into. Every single one, I could put my finger on it and be excited at just doing that for the rest of my life. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So it's where do you start? How do you, how do you channel all this into, um, you know, a, a, a sane direction? You know what I mean? There's two things I'd like to be doing is working on my music full-time and the film project that I mentioned to you. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is called Bickershaw. That's been eight years in the making. Mm. Those two things, music and the film, is what in the ideal world I'd like to be doing every day when I get up. Um, but that's neither of us are going to generate money for maybe a year or two yet, you know what I'm saying? So it's uh, what do I do in the meantime? Keep that DJing going, you know? Get do me... you find it quite therapeutic getting everything down? Yeah, totally. It's therapeutic getting it down, but when you look at it the day after, you think, fucking hell, where do I start? <laughs> do you know what I mean? But it's... And I do, I, sometimes I'll show it people and you'll get an objective opinion of it. I showed it to somebody the other day who's... Uh, She's in the world of marketing and tech, and I showed her this just randomly, and she said, I think her first words were fucking hell. <laughs> and then she said, have you got an agent? And her manager said, no. She said, you, you do with some sort of, somebody to steer you through it. 
And then she, the other thing she said is, right, which, which of these will make hundreds of pounds and which will make thousands of pounds? And I said, well, these will make thousands, but not for a while. And, mm. you know, in the meantime, I need to keep the, the smaller circles coming in. But no, I, I, going back to what you were saying, it's like that, that, that energy that I've got and that um, creativeness. It's what I am and it's what I'm all about. And, and it drives you. It drives me. And yeah. I might have already peaked and, you know, I might be remembered for something that I've already done, but... I still believe genuinely that my best work is still ahead of me. You know what I mean? And that that's positive mindset, though, that Clint. I'm, I'm good at positivity. Yeah. yeah, I'm totally good at that. But uh, it's very. It, I was. I've sent to somebody. Sent to somebody. Actually, I was talking to my son the other day, and he was really <laughs> negative about going to school, and this this had happened, and this yeah. and this, and he reeled off a list of things that you know for an eight-year-old, eight-and-a-half-year-old, um, are kind of massive, but in the grand scheme of things, don't mean nothing. And I yeah. said to him, I said, do you know what, Hardy? I said, it takes so much more effort to be negative about someone yeah. than to just let things go and just try and be positive. Yeah. And he went, really? I said, yeah, just try it. Just try it for today and see how you go. And he went, well, I'll try. Yeah. Like, really? Yeah, fuck off, Dad. Eight, eight and a half if you told me to fuck off, then I'd be dragging him out of school. We'd be having words. Although I'm sure he'll call me much worse in the future. Yeah. You mentioned it briefly there, and of course we've got to get into it, about the Inspirals mm. and how it all started and how you met. And So when did that start? It started pretty much, I mean, going back to that punk moment in mm. end of 76 where I suddenly thought, I'm not interested in teaching art. I'm not really that interested in painting pictures or being a filmmaker. I want to get in a band, I want to get into music. Do you think it was that gig that the penny drops and was Absolutely. an inspiration for you? Yeah, that, that gig definitely, but that whole era of what, what was happening in the country at that time, you know, the Sex Pistols were on the front of the newspapers every two days, you know, for something or one reason or another. Um... And at the same time, they're on top of the pops, and it was like all the shit stuff had gone off top of you, and you were getting all these amazing punk bands on there. So I, you know, it's very obvious in my mind that's I can do music now. You know, I don't have to be the, the best guitarist in the world or the greatest singer. I can get into a band now. Like the so, door's been opened for, yeah, totally, for so yeah. many people, hasn't it? So I left that? college in I think it might have been seventy, like spring of seventy-seven, Easter seventy-seven. I dropped out. You know. People were saying to me, oh, why are you dropping out? I'm like, not dropping out, I'm leaving to pursue my dream. Um, and I got a job in the local steel mill. My mum and dad were still in the corner shop. Right at the end of the street was this massive sheet metal factory. Mm. And I told my mum and dad, I want to get a job so I can get money, so I can start making music, getting into bands, whatever. So they got me a job, with, you know, because all the guys from the factory came to our shop for the sandwiches and all that. So I got a job there, really good money, shit working conditions, really dangerous, working behind the guillotine, chopping sheet metal up. and um, Health and safety out the window. Oh, yeah, well, there was none. It, yeah. it wasn't a thing back then. Yeah. And it was like I'd be on the other side, so I was only the junior on this massive guillotine, as wide as this room, probably like 15 foot wide. And I'd be behind it, picking up the bits of metal, and it'd be... Collecting bits of metal, stacking them up, cutting your hands all the time. Oh, and occasionally the guy that was running it, John, John Curry, a good lad, but... Um, Bit of an head the ball, he'd put a frog through. Oh, <laughs> they found a frog. What? So you've been there, you've been there, and then suddenly, like a frog, a frog's leg had come through or an head or something. Like, <laughs> John, you bastard! <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's called Stockwell's sheet metal. I did that for about six months, and it got very dark. You know, even though I knew why I was doing it, I was getting seventy quid a week, which is a lot of money. 
I knew what was why I was there, but I got to a point where I was starting to get into a really dark place with it, and I started talking to my mates on the guillotine about I'm going to get out, I've got to get out, I've got to get out. And I remember somebody saying to me, "Once you start working here, you never get out." And there was there was people there that I'd been there for like twenty and thirty years. These yeah. old guys that had been coming into my mum and dad's shop since we moved in in nineteen sixty, whatever it was, sixty four. And I thought, yeah, you know what, I am going to get out, and I did get out, but. Um, yeah, give me the money. I, I had money so I could start buying more records and little bits of recording equipment and all that. Um, and the way I got out, one of the guys that came to the sheet metal one day to collect some steel or whatever was an old friend of my mum and dad's, Mike, Mike Milner. And I got talking to him. I said, you know, I'm not really enjoying it here. It's, you know, good money, but it's dangerous. It's dirty. And he said, I didn't come and work for me. I've got a furniture company in Ashton and you can come and work down there if you want. So it's a long trip on my motorbike, but... Yeah, I enjoyed the work better. It was it, it was easier, it was cleaner, it was safer. And after about probably only 18 months of working there, maybe a couple of years, Mike's business partner pulled out of the company and he said to me, do you want to become my partner? Do you want to buy shares in the, the furniture company? Right. So I said, yeah, let's do it. And I borrowed some money off mum and dad, borrowed some off the bank, bought a chunk of the company. So by 21, age 21, I was company director. Wow. And... Because I'd been loyal to this guy's business, you know what I mean? I was like, it, it seemed a bit bizarre to me at the time. I wasn't looking for shares in a company. I didn't want to be a director. But he came to me randomly and said, how do you fancy it? And I said, why me? And he said, well, because you, you're a grafter. You're very loyal to what we're all about. And, and obviously there was trust there. Yeah, and I was being nice. You know, I was being supportive of him because my mum and dad's one of the best mates back in the day. Yeah. So anyway, so I became a company director at 21. This is all building up to the inspirals. Don't worry, we are getting it. <laughs> so the company expanded pretty quick then between... That'd be probably 80, 1980, up to 84, 85, but we expanded pretty quick. And by early 84, I started uh, taking over some of the empty office space in the building and I built myself a little studio. So instead of doing it in my bedroom, I was making music in my actual, in this empty office in the mill, South Street, Ashton Underline. And um, then I started letting bands come in to rehearse. Or just, bands, just like local bands? Local bands, yeah. I mean, you know, um, bands would rehearse, bands would phone me up a second, you record as a demo tape on your you know, equipment. I had a four-track cassette-based system at the time, so it was very basic. And I think he used to charge three quid an hour to rehearse in there, and I think 20 quid a day to record a tape, you know what I mean? It was all very basic. Um, and it was doing all right, it was a nice little sideline thing. It was, something that, you know, it was all about my passion for it, rather than I wasn't making a lot of money out of it, but I was loving making music in my own little room. You know? And anyway, one day I got a call from... Uh, this band from Oldham saying, you know, we've got a band called the Inspiral Carpets. Can we, can you record a demo for us? I think this was in probably late 85. And um, it was Graham Lambert that I spoke to on the phone. Come down to the mill, record a demo, three songs maybe. And at that point, the Inspirals didn't have a keyboard player, it was just four-piece guitar, bass, drums, vocals. Very shouty punk music. Right. But I liked it immediately because it was punk. You know, they, they didn't see it as punk. I think they were trying to be more psychedelic or more... Garage, but I just saw it right away. The energy was brilliant, and the lack of the lack of skill appealed to me as well. Um, We're going back to the Sex Pistols as well. Yeah, now, totally. Sort of yeah. Linking it and all. I'm thinking in my, in my mind, I've got a fucking '60s organ in the other room, the '1960s Farfisa, uh, which I still got. And I didn't mention it, but I fell in love with the music. They came back a few weeks after and did another tape. So there's two demos out there that are the Inspirals without me playing on it. And after the second one, I just said to Graham, 
if I bring in this organ that I've got in the other room, which is a definitive 60s garage sounding, you know, transistor instrument rather than the Hammond organ that a lot of people went for. I said, if we bring that in here, it's going to sound like seeds or, you know, question mark the Mysterians. And we'd, sure enough, it's a Monday night, we wheeled it in. I joined in the, the rehearsal session that night and jammed along and it just sounded brilliant. And that was it. I was in this band called The Inspirals, which nobody had heard of them. You know, they were doing the odd gig around Oldham in pubs and that. So we started working together, did some more demos. I started joining on the writing process and things started happening really quickly from 86. We went from playing pubs in Oldham to playing the cool bars in Manchester. So places like Corbiers and Pierrot's, whatever else they were called. We'd be doing gigs like that. And um, then the local heads, the local faces started turning up at our gigs. So people that would see watching New Order or The Fall, yeah. the faces you know, the, of the scene... They started coming to our gigs. There's one lad called Alex Stashko. Do you know Alex? No. He's a big, big on the Manchester music scene. Not musician, but he's one. He's a big appreciator of music. Yeah. And he's still a good friend of ours now. And when he started coming to our gigs, that's when I knew we were onto something. Oh, really? Because he 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 goes to all the big gigs. Yeah. He bootlegs all the big gigs. He still does. So. So he's always the, like he's one of those that's like first on the scene. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. So he still that. is. He still is. He's um, you know he's still. I see him at a lot of gigs now, and he's always got his recorder secretly these days because yeah. you know, bootlegging's not really. It used to be though, didn't it? Yeah, back then it was a bit snide. Yeah, but we've always said to him, like you know, even on recent gigs, <clears throat> even in 2015 when we did our last gigs, like Alex, you know, your name's on the guest list. Record it. Send us a recording of it as well, if you don't mind. So. Anyway, people like that started turning up and we knew that things were growing nice. So then we started sending out demo tapes to people, cassette tapes. Were. To record companies? Record companies, venues. Radio stations? Radio stations, yeah. yeah. We'd be getting played on local, like BBC Manchester, I think they were, they were the first people in the world to play an Inspiral track, I think. But then back then we had Sunday nights on Key 103, which was Piccadilly, I think, at the beginning. It was Tony the Greek, he did a Sunday night show, like a John Peel sort of. yeah. He started playing us, and then we sent the stuff to John Peel, and he played it the day he got it. Did he? He played. He played our first single, I think it was, "Keep the Circle Around." He played it. If I remember rightly, whoever was on before him, and it might have been, it was one of the Kershaws. It was either Andy Kershaw or Liz Kershaw that was on just before him, and they ended the show with "Keep the Circle Around," and then John Peel came on and started it. And when something like that happens on Radio 1, this is, you're thinking, yeah, fucking hell, we're doing all right, we're going, we're going to smash it here. And when Peel played your music back then... That was it, wasn't it? Your phone would be going the next day. My God. Or your dad's phone, wherever you're living. Yeah. And it was, uh, everybody wanted to sign the Inspirals, I wanted to speak to us about a deal, so it happened really quickly. Before you know it, we were on our way to London talking to all these... And did you have a manager at this point, or were you just... I think we did at this point, yeah, I think we got Anthony, Anthony Boggiano, I think he was looking after us then, by that point. So we were getting, we just went into this amazing period of being schmoozed by these massive labels. Back then it was like CBS that became Sony, Warner's, RCA. These companies were all, they wanted our signature, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think for a while we did it ourselves, we put our own singles on Cow Records for a little bit. And we just played the game, you know, played it, let it build. We were very much a cottage industry for a while while we built it. We, did, we built up this amazing T-shirt empire, selling T-shirts with a cow on it. Who came yeah. up with the cow? Me. Who came up with cool as fuck? Me. <laughs> but, um, it was um, it was the cow thing. I'll come back to that in a minute. We what we did was we were being self sufficient. We we're being very working class. We didn't want to sell out too early. 
we'd seen bands like the Wedding Present and I'm not sure it happened to Pop Will Eat itself. They'd signed to these majors and then they'd done the first album, but because the sales weren't up there with, you know, Ralph Bactell or whatever, they'd get dropped. Yeah. And back then, getting dropped by your label had a big stigma with it. So I remember we saw it happen to a couple of bands. I know I think it happened to the Wedding Present. Um, and we were watching that, thinking, let's just keep building ourselves before we do a deal here. But also, at this point, you're still learning and growing and maturing like, yeah. as a band. Yeah, we were still, I was still learning to play with two hands on my machine, you know what I mean? It's like, so we were growing and developing <laughs> and learning about the industry, selling a lot of T-shirts because that meant we could do recordings. I think we recorded our first album. I think it was 30,000 quid and we raised all that money through selling cassette tapes and T-shirts. That paid for the recording. At the same time, we're getting taken out to, you know, games at Wembley to watch some FA Cup final with Pepsi and Shirley, I think, were with us, or Daphne and Celeste. Some double act that were big at the time. Right. They, they brought, they, they were on the label already, so they, like, they, they thought that I was hanging out with Salt and Pepper, whoever it was. It's going to sweeten the day Swing it, yeah. yeah. And it didn't, they were nice girls, but we didn't, um, we didn't, we didn't go with any of the majors. We ended up, eventually, we had a friend of ours called Nikki Kafalas, who was a plugger, radio plugger, and she said, my boyfriend, boyfriend at the time, Daniel Miller, he owned Mute Records, a big independent label. He's heard about what you're doing. He'd like to give you some advice. Do you fancy going chatting with him? So we had this trip to London, literally just to get an objective opinion off this little indie label. Yeah. There was actually quite a big label at the time. To speak to Daniel, he was going to, you know, because we were friends with his girlfriend, he was going to give us some advice. No, no, you know, no sort of question in the world that he might end up signing us. That wasn't even part of it. Mute Records back then, 1989, was Depeche Mode, Erasure, and then a bunch of stuff you've never heard of, Diamond Galas and Einstein's End and all this weird uh, German industrial music. Yeah. A lot of shouting, you know, a lot of, a lot of this going on. And we were like, there's no way we wanted to be on Mute Records. Uh, and we went down to Daniel's office in London and he, he came into us at the meeting room and he just said, right, so you're thinking of throwing it all away? I'm like, what do you mean? So, look at what you've done, look at what you've created on your own, you know, on your own merit there, you, you, you know, your records that you're making, the T-shirt empire, the, all this kind of stuff. If you signed to a major, it'd be the worst thing that you've ever done. It more or less just blunt as that, really. And he, he was more or less like encouraging us to carry on down the indie route. And we came away from the meeting still with no intention to sign with him. But we left him a cassette of the recordings of the album. Which were, the, sorry to interrupt, was the offer on the, on the table at that point in that meeting? Did he say, I'd love you to come no, here? No, no. But other labels, were, other majors, were, they were offering us a quarter of a million quid or whatever. I can't remember what the figures were, but um, we came away from that meeting. Cheers, Dan, great talking to you. There's a cassette, by the way, of the, um, the album that we've recorded that isn't mixed yet. And I think it was the day after we got a call from Nicky saying, Daniel's listened to the tape, he'd really like to talk to you about doing a deal with Mute. And he'd made such a big impression on us that we just immediately went back down and got stuck into the, you know, the nuts and bolts of putting a deal together. And when obviously, it, Daniel was going to let you, even though you were signed to Mute, he was going to still let you be as independent as, as yeah. possible. So you would be working in tandem. Absolutely. Well, if you listen to some of the weird shit that he had on his label already, <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, fucking hell, he's not going to mess with us if he's letting... Letting that go out. If he's letting them Germans it gird us against each other and scream over the top of it and letting a fire extinguisher off, then yeah, he's going to be all right with our little quirky pop songs from, from Manchester. So we signed with Mute, and I remember in my mind, they said we worked out how much we wanted, because he said, how much do you want? 
And I remember sitting down and thinking, right, we probably need 70 quid each a week <coughs> to, to live on. Right. <laughs> Very working class. Right, 70 quid each times five, stick 20% on for management and a bit more, you know, for, to leave in the bank. And we worked it from that. That's how we worked out how much we wanted. Because we thought, we realised that if we were going to put him a million quid in debt, he's not going to be that happy when we start making, you know, 200 quid a year profit. It's like, yeah. so we, we just came in on really, you know, low level of um, financial input from the label, really. And it's the best thing we could have done because, yeah, yeah you know, he let us do what we want for the next three or four years and they're an amazing team. We still work with Mute. We've got no real contractual obligation to work with them, but they're still part of our family, the Inspirals. Yeah. And we're still in touch with them, even though the band are at the moment completely out of action. You know, Craig died three years ago, still no discussion about doing anything else, but Mute are still our go-to people in terms of anything to do with the Inspirals brand or whatever. So we had a great four or five years with Mute, um, and that only ended when we, we came to the point where we would have recorded album number five. Um, we'd lost direction a bit, I think. You know, we weren't making pop music. We were, we were getting a bit too experimental, I think, at the end. Can't remember. But anyway, Daniel decided he didn't want the, the final, the fifth album. So he so let he, us go. He, he didn't want it? Yeah, he decided not to go ahead with the um, the fifth album, which right. record companies, they, they do a, you do a contract and they'll sign you for five years, but they've got the option to pull out at any point, etc. So we left Mew, you know, as quite amicably. And it coincided with Madchester, as we knew it, this is spring 95. Yeah. Manchester was pretty much over, as far as we could see. Britpop hadn't really started happening. And we just thought, you know, after 10 years of doing this full time, you know, personally, I felt like stepping out and doing something a bit different. Sure. Um, and is, that's what we did. not unlike you at all. No, it, so, no. <laughs> so anyway, so we, we, you know, the band very amicably split. And it was, I think it was May of 95, might be March. Um, and we all went off in our own directions. Mm. And immediately I got back into DJ and I started doing, writing solo music. I started doing music for television. I started doing educational, you know, talking to students about the music industry. Yeah. So I got busy, like I do. And um, the Inspirals reformed, I think it was eight or nine years after 2003. And that was a beautiful moment coming back together because there was times during that nine years, eight years, nine years, there was times when I, you know, personally said, I don't want to do it again. Yeah. I'm not going, to, not going to revisit the Inspirals. Was it, was it, uh, were you approached to? Yeah, there was offers coming through occasionally, you know, um, you know, an offer from SGM of X amount of money if you want to do a couple of gigs. I was, I was in a different place. I was working on solo music at the time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I wasn't that keen. Um, but by 2003, where I'd got some of my solo music out of my system. I think that's probably what I needed to do because the Clint Boone experience what, that I did in the late 90s, mm. looking back on it, it was almost like all the things I could not do in the Inspirals, I can do with this new band. You can it was, channel that. Here, it was a cabaret yeah. band. It was me being that little fucking stupid kid in junior one getting caned for making my mates laugh. It was, it was a, a brilliant cabaret band. When I think back, it was a show, you know, we had props on stage at the time and bands didn't do that. Yeah. You know, before British Sea Power started coming out with the trees and the banners and all that, we had all this shit going on. Um, and it was crazy band. It was still, you know, essentially great garage pop music. But I had, like, an opera singer, Alfie Bo. He was Alfie my opera Bell, singer. Yeah. He was opera dude in the Clint Boone experience. Of course. It, bands didn't have opera singers back then. You know, they don't now, do they? So it's this, this psychedelic pop band with an opera singer and a guy playing a tuba and a full-size 
cardboard cuts out of me stood at the side of myself and a reindeer's head, a real reindeer's head stuck on the front of my organ. <laughs> and it was just all the things I couldn't do within spirals. So I got, I got it out of my system. Yeah. Did two great albums. Did TFI Friday with Chris Evans the night that Iggy Pop was on, which was a bit of an highlight for me, really. So by 2003, the manager that I had at the time, Richard Jones, who was also involved with the Pixies and James and he'd done the Spice Girls, he's still a big manager around here. He was looking after my solo career, if you like, not just in music, but in radio and whatever else I was doing. And at some point, the conversation came up about the Inspirals retrospective publishing rights were coming up for negotiation or renegotiation. And the Inspirals got in touch about it and I said, I've got his manager, Richard, that I'm working with. Maybe we should let him look at this and maybe represent us on the new negotiations. So we got together, the Inspirals, first time in, I think it was eight years. Right. And I'd been in touch with some of them. Me and Graham had stayed friends pretty much through that, 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 that gap. But we got back around the table to talk about the Inspirals' historic publishing thing, not to do with the Inspirals getting back together. Yeah. And I think we had one meeting where we talked about that. And then I think the second meeting, somebody just said, what about doing some more gigs to promote this shit? Who's up for it? And I think we all just went, yeah, I'll do it. I'm up for it. And we just, that was it, 2003. Like as simple as that? Yeah. Wow. Because it's like... But it's about timing as well, isn't timing, it? That was yeah. the right time. And you know what? If, if there is... I've not got a master plan, mate. It's like, when I look back, if I write down what some of what we've talked about, some of what I've not talked about, yeah, and what... It looks a bit like this kid that had a master plan of this is what I'm going to do. Splitting up in 95 was the best thing we could have done. I think if we just stuck together, we could have done... If we just waited another few months, yeah, like the Charlatans did, and like Pulp did, these bands that weren't in a dead strong place at the time came out of that period as part of the Britpop movement. Mm. I'm sure we could have done that and we would have been a big Britpop band after being a big Manchester band. But I'm just so glad that I had that time to develop my other talents and, you know, get into radio. What, what a great career that's been for yeah. me. And that was because I had time to do it. Um, so I'm glad we took that break. And when we came back together in 2003, it was just a beautiful moment. I remember the first gig was Sheffield Octagon. Right. And I remember being... We'd been in the dressing room, we came out ready to come on stage and we were behind the backdrop and you could see a big projection of the cow and people were mooing, like they used to do in the old days, mooing, <laughs> yeah, mooing, <laughs> and we had this, this coming on music playing. I was so overwhelmed, it was just a beautiful moment, you know what I mean? And that was 2003, so we did an amazing comeback. Then we took another break, didn't we, about, I can't remember when we stopped working again, but I think we got... We were doing the, the retro stuff. We were doing all the hits. We weren't really working on new music. We weren't going abroad. We were just enjoying celebrating what we'd been 10 years earlier. Yeah. And then Tom left in 2011, I think it was, when Tom left. I won't go into details. We were still friends. I still admire him a lot. But, you know, something happened that was, you know, he was unhappy, we were unhappy. We separated. Right. Uh, and then we got Stephen back in. So Stephen was the original singer back in 85 when they came recording in my little studio. We, we called Steve and said, look, how do you fancy coming and do some music in the Spirals? And he came back in and um, that was another amazing chapter. We did a load of new music, we did a new album, we went to Argentina again, went to Greece. It was suddenly like, the, it was like the, the early days, but without Tom, it was, you know, Steve was there instead. Um, but yeah, we had some more amazing moments and that only ended in 2015 when, when Craig died, our, our drummer. Yeah. Um, Sorry, nine, 2016, sorry. Um, which was tragic and fucking hell, what a, what a... To me, that's where the band ends, you know. So my personal view of it is when people ask me about it, it's like, 
why go on? You know, I did 30 years with him drumming. Um, and, you know, our last album, we put an album out in 2015, I think it was, you know, a new studio album. The reviews were exceptional for it. You know, I'm very proud of it. You know, it's like, that's probably the best place to underline it. Craig not being here anymore is like, that's probably the the, the full stop at the end yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. There'll always be ongoing business to do with the back catalogue and publishing and stuff like that. And But, uh, yeah, to me personally, at this moment in time, I still don't feel like it's right to, to put the the words in spiral carpets behind that band. It doesn't feel right at the moment. I'm not saying it'll never happen. And it's not up to me alone. It's like, you know, it's a group decision of it. If but but right now your feeling is that it's not complete. Obviously, because he's not there. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the, the story might be complete, but, um, yeah, the band isn't... Um, yeah, it just doesn't feel right to me. No. It's weird, isn't it? It's, you know what, I think, you know, looking at it pragmatically, if we were a full-time band, like the Charlatans, like James, you know, an heritage band, who do it pretty much full-time, and they've got a big team of people that are, you know, employed under that brand, if we'd have been in that position, we might have felt a bit more obliged to carry on yeah for the benefit of other people sure but because it was it was an hobby it was very much an hobby even in 2015 mm. we all had these other day jobs you know like radio or whatever else Graham was working for SGM so we didn't depend on the Inspirals for our um, our main income and it was like an hobby it was a brilliant hobby it's fucking brilliant hobby it's a good hobby you were getting paid for oh yeah we're getting paid well <laughs> for it we're making more money out of gigs than we'd ever made before because it's you know it's common knowledge now that in, in this modern age if you're a band of good live, you can make a lot of money out of it. Mm. Um, so yeah, we, it was again just a bunch of really beautiful memories in, in me in my mind. You know, not just the comeback with Steve, the bit with Tom before that, and the, you know all the all the, the glory years as they call them. You know, when we were having all the hits back in the day, just a lot of great memories. Really, not many bad memories with the Inspirals. Just the odd moment where you'd be, you know, away from home for a bit too long, missing people, and you know. Diarrhea because you'd eaten some shit the night before, and <laughs> but a lot of musicians I've, I have talked to, right, they do touch on the touring, and yeah, in it, in it, you know, obviously it can be lucrative, yeah, but it takes its toll, it can be soul destroying, you yeah. know. It's like there's a lot of time sat waiting, um, it's waiting around, you're waiting for a, a limousine, <laughs> waiting for a plane, waiting to check into an hotel, waiting for the sound check waiting for the gig, a lot of that goes on and a lot of those times are um, can be quite soul-destroying and there's times when you think, why am I doing this, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. But the moments where you're actually being creative, you know, making the music, writing the music, playing the music, that's uh, an unbeatable feeling, really. Um, and it's something that I've missed in recent years. I think radio's definitely taken me away from my music. Um, I'm still working on music. I'm going to be doing a lot more of it after the last day of March. <laughs> <laughs> but... I'm excited about what's coming next, you yeah. know what I mean? It's like, like I said before, the ideas I've got for things that I'd like to do, I won't get time to do them all, but I definitely feel like I'm on the verge of something something else amazing about to happen. I talk about the film project that we're doing, it's called Bickershaw. I won't go into detail about what it's about, but it's the most exciting thing that's happened to me creatively that I've been part of mm. since bringing my organ into the Inspiral Carpets rehearsal room. It's like that, hearing it and thinking, this has got potential. And that's what I feel about the film project. And, you know, I'm going to have a lot more time to develop on that. Yeah, I've written 14 songs for it. It's a musical. Yeah. The idea is I'm going to play the main part in it, Billy Fielding. 
So I'm, I'm buzzing about that. That's my new band, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, That's yeah. my new... Because part of that is there will be a band. These songs are going to go out and we're going to gig them. That's, you know, in my mind, that's the plan. Well, when one thing's taken away, yeah, replace totally, it yeah. with something else. Yeah, and also the thing, you know, as you said, like with XS Manchester changing, that at the moment is a lot of new bands or artists in this part of the world. It's their first port of call when they've got some new music to yeah. get. That's going. So one of the things I intend to do is start some band sessions on like a YouTube channel, Clint Boone's Front Room. It's basically the band will come in, set up, little chat with us on couches, perform a couple of songs. And that's one of the things I'm hoping to do to give a platform to the next generation. Yeah, of new course. bands Yeah, um, But it's so important, isn't it? Because where else yeah. are people going to get played? And again, you know, that's part of that is me remembering how important it was for Phil Corbell on Meltdown on BBC Radio Manchester in 1986, yeah. playing that cassette of us, that playing that... Re- we used to record... We'd recorded... a a song at tea time in my four-track studio in Ashton. We'd master it onto a quarter-inch reel-to-reel tape and we'd take that down to Phil Coybell and he'd play it that night on his show. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the feeling of that and Tony the Greek getting behind us and, you know, Pete Mitchell supported us a lot in the early days, Mike Sweeney did. So, and I can still remember the buzz that I got. So that's why I'd like the idea of... And you're, well, and you're passing it down to the next generation. Yeah, and I've never forgot. I've always, I'm not doing it, you know, because it's like things going tits up with excess. It's like, I've always done that. I've always supported who I can. Yeah, of course. Because I've got, I've got time and... And also because you can. I can. Because you've got that platform to help yeah. people. And I might not always have the time. I might end up with a career that's so... I might be so busy in whatever I'm doing that I'm sorry, lads, I can't help you. You yeah. know what I mean? I'd rather not become that kind of person. I, I like the idea of being available and approachable and, you know, able to help these people. So, But yeah, I'd be, be interested to do this again in a year or so and see where I'm at with it, you know what I mean? And see whether my, my master plan that's not a master plan. Whatever it is, it's chaotic. Well, you'll, what you'll have to do is um, send me a photo of that mind map and then I can put it out with this episode. Yeah, on I, might the have to, I might have to blur some of it out in case it's uh, yeah. cont- contentious. Or, or... Um, Clint, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, absolute pleasure. I know we've been talking about trying to do this for well over six months, haven't yeah. we? So I'm really pleased that we could do it on such an absolutely it's glorious, crisp day in Manchester. It looks like summer, but it doesn't feel like it when it's out there. It's nippy, but what a beautiful city, not a cloud in the sky. Perfect day And for these it. days in Manchester, the high-rise buildings have got trees on top of them as well. We're definitely getting very Barcelona, aren't we? <laughs> Clint Burn, thank you so much, man. Thank you very much, Craig. Beautiful, that. Absolutely beautiful. And another episode is done. What a guy. I love spending time with Clint. It's so funny, I've never recorded an intro straight after I've done the episode before. Did it sound quite giddy on the intro? Yeah. Exciting, though. It was a great conversation. I loved it. And, you know, of course, people are going to go straight in with the Inspiral Carpets. But, no, this is the Two Shot Podcast. I wanted to know about homeschooling because... I was completely uneducated, but I know a lot more now, as I'm sure you do. It's fascinating, though, isn't it? Letting children, guiding children, nurturing children, and letting them choose what inspires them. Fascinating stuff from Clint Boone. Um, well, look, I am going to go. Uh, so thank you so, so much for downloading and subscribing and all your messages and emails. Keep them coming. You know we do try and respond to each and every single one of you. I think we succeed. That, that sounds like a question. We do succeed, of course we do. Um, now, somebody was asking about the beautiful Two Shot Podcast badges. 
Now look, we've got a very limited supply left. So if you want one, head over to patreon.com forward slash the two shot podcast. You will see what you have to do there. And no doubt a beautiful limited edition two shot podcast enamel badge will be coming your way. If you can help us out, we would really appreciate it. If not, tell a friend. If not this month, maybe next month. No, maybe never. Look, until next week, you take care. Stay safe. Stay sound. I've been Craig Parkinson, almost losing his voice. And he's been producer Griff. Never loses his voice because he doesn't speak. Until next week, take care. Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. 